What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. welcome back to so very wrong about games because we are always so very wrong about them mark yes it is definitely the best board gaming podcast you are listening to right now 100 percent. so like mark said this is a board gaming podcast about board games my name is mike walker i'm with my good friend mark bigney and we're going to talk about games we played this week news and why it doesn't matter our feature game of the week It'll just be the feature game. No topic this week because of the summer schedule, which is going to be War Cry by Games Workshop. And speaking of games played this week, Mark, there's going to be a ton of them because I got some free time. And do you know what I did with that free time, Mark? You wasted it with us. I gamed it up. Yep. It was a great week. Tons of games. Speaking of tons of games, auction going to end in a couple days. I'll put the. I'll look on our Facebook page. Look in the guild. 100, 100 games up for auction. Take a look. Let's get on with it. Mark, what did you play this week? I get to play Beasts of Balance. I talked about this a bit ago. It's one of those games that I'm not even sure belongs in the Board Game database, strictly speaking. It's more of a toy than a game. But whatever. It's this adorable stacking game involving a Bluetooth-enabled plinth and these bizarre plastic creatures. And it's it's just cute. It's a cute toy. You, you play it co-op and you try to maximize your score. Of course, it's very easy to cheat. So mostly, it's a function of exploration. What happens when you cross a dragon with a unicorn? What happens when you cross a toucan with a shark? Things like that. And it's just, it's just adorable. And honestly, the physicality of it is very, very nice, as all stacking games ought to be. And as I frequently say in the context of dexterity games, although more on this later, it's all—it's generally a shame when you have these adorable components that are very, very pleasant to manipulate, and then the victory conditions let you down in the end. At least in the context of Beasts of Balance, it doesn't pretend to be anything other than it is, which is a children's toy. And the app integration is wonderful. The the It's one of those things where the engineering of the device is impressive. It knows when pieces are stacked on the plinth and when things have fallen off very, very, very closely. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but then again, I don't really know how anything works. Everything's like a miracle to me, Walker. I'm like an infant. Everything just appears out of nowhere, spontaneously evanesces when it leaves my field of vision, and the inner workings of everything is an absolute delight. Exactly. It's like, it's, this is what makes life very interesting, you know, when everything's new and exciting. 
can't cover- wait till you know I have to call up my children to show me how technology works. Cover up my eyes, and I think that the universe disappears into an inky black void. Yeah, so that's Beast of Balance. <laughs> so this was this was four adults sitting around at a table playing with a kid's toy, watching to see what weird uh, fantastical creatures would come up on, on an app. So that, it's hard to be too judgmental about such an experience, but on the other hand, it's hard to be too cold to such an experience either. So that was that, that's my, that's been my further exposure to Beast of Balance. I have not tried the PvP mode. It's limited to three players. Maybe I'll try it someday. Maybe not. I got to get Teotihuacan back to the table again with all three new players. So that that's, you know, gives, gives you nice new experiences, new ways, you know, they find to play. Always fun. Teotihuacan, it's like a dice. And it's one of those dice manipulation games that I love, like sort of like worker placement in a way, more like action selection. But the fact that your dice, you know, level up and, you know, ascend and all sorts of cool stuff happens and you get to build a giant pyramid all at the same time. Love it. Teotihuacan. Are you looking forward to the expansion? I am. It'll mix it up. Apparently there's like, you know, everyone gets their own little special power. It's one of the module type things where you can add whatever you like. And I love those types of expansions. And it'll bring, you know, breathe new life to a game as per usual. Got to play Obsession. Obsession is the game that is Pride and Prejudice very thinly veiled. In fact, it says on the front of the box that it is a game about pride, intrigue, and prejudice. Maybe not necessarily in that order. Just to just to shake things up, just so you couldn't tell that that is exactly what the game is all about. I've commented on Obsession before. It is a game that lives mostly by virtue of its theme. It's a relatively straightforward Euro management slash efficiency game, and it's multiplayer solitaire, except in a couple of degenerate ways. I complained about this in the context of terraforming mars you know when you have a multiplayer solitaire game and then just for some seemingly random reasons you insert some arbitrary attack powers into the game that don't quite fit those both reared their ugly head in our last playing of obsession that kind of was unfortunate it just doesn't belong in the game everything else is multiplayer solitaire and then you have these arbitrary attacks it's 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 weird it determined the winner in the context of this game so that wasn't so hot either and Obsession is, I have endless sympathy for the theme. I'm very, very keen on it. But it's one of those areas where if you're just playing it as a, as a Euro management game, the theme kind of slips away. But on the other hand, if you take the time to really smell the roses, as it were, no pun intended, then it can really drag past its the time that it wants to be. It's already over long. With four players, it was two and a half hours and we were playing very briskly. And there's not a whole lot to justify that length. So again, it gets by mostly on the strength of its charm. And if the uh, theme of social climbing and attempting to get your children to marry the most prestigious bachelor or bachelorette in Derbyshire appeals to you, then Obsession is absolutely the game for you. All the other vaguely Austin games have been pretty unsatisfying and not really much much of games at all, more like party social experiences. And that's fine. I'm not judging those things. I'm just judging the people who play them. As well we should. As well we should. But Obsession is very, very charming, even though about halfway through the game I start thinking, eh, yeah, I've, I've pretty much got this. We understand what's going on. Oh, we're going to be doing this again for another seven rounds? Okay, fine. But I do enjoy pulling it out every once in a while, and most of my friends are as enthusiastic about the theme as I am. So uh, if any of that sounds appealing, I heartily recommend Obsession. Got to play a great game, Mark. It's called Conflict in the Neutral Zone. It is a Crokinole-type game where you're playing Star Trek ships and you're knocking ships around and there's asteroids and there's there's dilithium crystals and all sorts of stuff and it and I think they just do a great job of keeping it basic in some th- in some cases and and sometimes uh too complicated in others 
So what you do is on your turn, you're going to, you know, deploy two, two discs to the board and flick them around. If there's any other discs on your side, you can flick them as well. And the cool part is that you can only flick discs if they're on your half of the board. So then you're not in this thing where you have to get up around the table or worry about, you know, taking side shots. It really streamlines the game down. It's like, these are the shots I'm going to take. You do it. There's three planets on, on the board. You're trying to, you know, flick your collectors onto the planets to get crystals and victory points or knock other ships off the planets to destroy them and get victory points so your attack ships attack and your collectors ships collect that part all great then they have these asteroids which in on themselves aren't a problem it's just they have this weird you know uh fiddly rule where you can't move a asteroid that was just placed and you have to so you have to sort of remember which one was just placed and they should have just you know simplified that somehow and some ships make reference to your opponent's asteroids so you have to remember who placed them in the first place oh yeah and then there's the buying of the new ships which in on itself is not a huge thing right it's just a flicking game but just you know to keep within the theme klingon should be able to get federation ships and the and the federation what i was thinking what we could do is you know separate the decks into like their separate piles and then you know, just make, there are neutral ships. So you just sort of have like a pool and buy your own or however you do it. I think it would just be more interesting if you kept your own color and, and, and remembered which ships were yours and you wouldn't have to worry about accidentally flicking your opponent's ship across the thing. What'd you think of conflict? So Star Trek conflict in the neutral zone is in many ways a game designed for us, right? A tiny little bit of resource management. So some, some degree of strategy board gaming layered on top of a dexterity game with a vaguely appealing theme and a pun in the title. Remind you of anything? Exactly. It's like, <laughs> just like Seal Team Flex is the only game that matters. It's in, in many ways pitched directly at our interest level. And I'll have to, I'll, I'll, I agree with everything that you've said. The thing with the asteroids is a, is a borderline mess. We had to sticker them and, we're going to have to refine our stickering regime just to get things uh, perfectly trackable because it's just a question of tracking what's going on. Because at the end of your turn, you might think, oh, well, how often do you want to move the asteroid that someone just placed? Well, actually, pretty much every turn because the asteroid that your opponent just placed is probably the one that's causing you the most grief. And so, so often, I'd be about to move you like, no, 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 I just placed that or vice versa. Anyhow, eh, minor component quibbles. But here, here's my here's the one great thing about Conflict in the Neutral Zone, and then I'll talk about a terrible thing. The great thing is that there really is a notion of back and forth. I might have a whole bunch of collector ships, and my, so my income might be really, really good, and I'm hurtling towards the victory condition. And then you, especially if it's you because you're really good at flicking games like this, you might then deploy an attack ship and just murder everybody. And, and in so doing, you get a whole bunch of points, and now suddenly the field's, uh, field's roughly equal. So there's not this notion of fighting, losing battles. You always feel like you're in it. It's a very quick game and very engaging in that sense. So top score to Star Trek Conflict in the Neutral Zone for that. My biggest problem is I think that the the theming is atrocious overall. So you're flicking Federation and Klingon starships. That's fine. And I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to get into a bizarre Star Trek rant about, you know, how warp drive works or anything like that. It's just, as you said, Federation starships coexisting with Klingon starships, if you're telling me that I'm the Federation and I can start buying Klingon starships, it just feels wonky and it just feels weird. It also feels weird as anything in Star Trek to be like, oh, I have to get these collectors so I can start accumulating dilithium crystals. Like, no, just because you called them dilithium crystals doesn't make it thematic. That's just not something that happens in Star Trek. So uh, that part I find generally frustrating 
It's hard to feel too upset about a game like this. It's best with two. The three-player and four-player modes are kind of back ports. But, you know, for a two-player flicking game, it's pretty good. It's just I find it a shame that the theming isn't better and the minor component quibbles. So overall, I very much enjoyed Conflict in the Neutral Zone. And it's a good thing to have around. It's quick. It's easily portable. It's, it's a nice design, minor issues notwithstanding. This was a good week for Pandemic. I played two Pandemic games. One of them was Pandemic Fall of Rome which I still think uh, now is is solidifying its place as my favorite pandemic game. The way it plays with movement, the way it plays with special powers, the way it plays with fortifications, it feels less like whack-a-mole and more like you're talking about an organically growing threat, no pun intended. As always, if you're old hat at Pandemic, you probably shouldn't be playing with the recommended normal level. You should probably spruce things up. I haven't tried the historical variant for Pandemic Fall of Rome, where you're not allowed to have any legions in Rome, and that sounds super hard. So maybe I'll give that a shot next time with the standard number of revolts. But it's nicely thematic, and it has a number of very, very interesting spins on the Pandemic formula. So I don't know how good it would be as a first Pandemic, because you don't really know what's being played with yet. And so, to a certain extent, this might just be my position as a jaded critic thinking, oh, this is fun because it is slightly different from this thing that I've been doing for years. But I really do think the Pandemic Fall of Rome, like all the historical Pandemic variants, are really, really, really solid designs and very interesting. And I am a little bit chagrined that you have declared yourself to be finished with Pandemic. In all its in all its sundry core forms, because I you know Fall of Rome, I think is a really 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 good co op design, and I was very glad to pull it out again. And that was Pandemic Fall of Rome. And the other pandemic we played was the new pandemic Rapid Response, which really not much of a pan- it's not a pandemic. not a pandemic game. No, it's more like you take what was the, what was the Martians? There was a Martian dice game. I wish Mar- Mars Martians Attack or something, where you like it was like a press your luck dice game where you keep rolling and getting Martians and guns and you got to pair them off and you're trying to get cat. There's cows involved as well. It's it's just that type of game where you just you're rolling as fast as you can, you know, taking chances, you know. Okay, was this was this actually a game with aliens and cows, or were you playing Great Western Trail no, and just getting it was, confused it was, again? No, it was a real game. It's important with, to distinguish these, Walker. Did you enter a fugue state? No. Okay. No, this it is an actual game, and it's a really good game. I should find out what it was actually called, because it is a great little, uh, you know, while you're waiting for people to show up, we played it an awful lot. Anyway, moving along to pandemic rapid response it's just like we just said you it's about rolling dice allocating them as quickly as you can because there's a real time timer that's ticking down and you have to you know accomplish all these tasks before you run out of time and i think overall i think if you do not have a real time game in your collection i think this is a pretty good buy I agree with you. I think that's a that's a good way to put it. So this is a real-time cooperative dice game by Kane Klenko. I've now played three cooperative real-time dice games by Kane Klenko, although one of them was solo. And honestly, they all feel more or less the same. So I'm talking about Fuse, Proving Grounds, and now Pandemic Rapid Response. And that's not necessarily too much of a criticism. They've all been engaging and quick and fun. We're talking about a 20-minute time commitment, maybe. And they do kind of interesting things with dice. The issue with Pandemic Rapid Response, which I find actually very, very interesting, is most cooperative real-time games everyone's playing at the same time. The fact that Pandemic Rapid Response is turn-based, more traditional turn structure, makes it into a lovely game of real-time bickering. It's, it's, it's really cool, actually, because how long someone takes on their turn is entirely up to them. They keep going until they say they're done or they've used all their dice. And 
all you have to do is just roll your dice and say you're done, and then your turn can be done. And I find that interesting, the the, the, the temptation to always do more versus the, the temptation to cycle, the the fact that in real time people who's uh, who are not taking their turns are yelling at the person who is actually rolling dice and what to do. That part I actually think is kind of cool. And what ties into that before you go on is the fact that when people aren't feeling it or they think they're you know, tying the game down or they're not doing it, they can just, you know, roll, do something very quickly that they know what to do and then quickly say their turn's done and the next person can go and and then they don't feel as though they're, you know, bringing the game down. I thought that part was really good. And take a breather and figure out what they need to do from a more macro perspective. Yeah, the pacing is actually really, really, really good, which is strange because, again, it's the more traditional boring turn structure of just going clockwise around the table, but the real-time element and the cooperative element bring together a really interesting sort of self-pacing to the game. Again, a little bit too easy. We played on the normal level, and then we started bumping up a little bit, and was still still a little bit too easy, but that's fine. The theming is a bit of a hash. You're a plane traveling around the world that's generating all these resources in the middle of the plane and then dumping them in various cities. That's the only way in which it bears any resemblance to Pandemic, by the way, the, the list of cities that you can save, and that's about it. And some of the art assets look similar. But it's, it's cool. It doesn't have the element that a lot of other dice games do. There are no bad dice results. It's just a question of some of them are less useful. Uh, useful than others. And what King Clanko does with dice is usually pretty solid, and, and Pandemic Rapid Response is no exception. So I agree with you that if you've already got your you know real-time cooperative fix covered, it's not going to set the world on fire, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it was another nice iteration from King Clanko, who I think is a solid workmanlike designer. Concordia. Played Concordia. Always loved Concordia. I, I'm, the more I play it, the more I enjoy it. And I, I like it because the the multiple maps they have really do make a difference like there's there's a lot of games out there that you know keep punching out maps right and it's just usually it really boils down to just different art or a different feel but in concordia i really feel it does make a difference what am i missing <laughs> i am the biggest matt gertz fan on the planet and i think concordia is one of his weakest designs and i actually my experience with the different maps has been precisely the opposite i find them you know more or less the same as any other map i don't know what i, I am so alone in this the rest of the gaming world is united in one voice that concordia is the greatest thing ever and that the different maps are really cool so i have to be missing something i played concordia dozens of times it's just I, uh, well, I, my, I like it. I really like it. But I don't think it's one of his better ones. True. I, well, well, my comparison was I was trying to come up with things while you're while we were doing other things there was I was going to compare it to Hansa Teutonica because there are a few maps out for Hansa Teutonica. But I think the intricate play that is in Hansa Teutonica already, like the interplay between the players and, and the intensity on the board is is already there so much that that another map is just really window dressing. Right? Whereas in Concordia... Uh, uh, most of the game is actually moving around the map and getting in people's way and, and locking down paths. Not so much on the baseboard, but I think if you play on like the smaller boards, you can see where it really, you know, locks down where people can go and how fast things fill up. I, I hear what you're saying, and it sounds very familiar to lots of other things that other people have said, even people that I trust. And it's, I'm not able to reconcile that with my own personal experience. I will grant you this. You did, you did remind me of something. The different maps in Concordia are very good for scaling the map for a number of players. 
You know, if you're going to play with three players, you probably want a different map than you're playing with five because you want to keep things tight. It's just, uh, well, since we're talking about Hansa Teutonica, let's talk about Hansa Teutonica. I think that, and here's the difference that I feel with, with Concordia. In Hansa Teutonica, the different maps change the different choke points because there's often a tension around upgrading certain kinds of actions at various points in the game. And so when you do something as simple as changing where that upgrade goes, you change the contours of the geographic fights that happen. Whereas in Concordia... I don't feel that. I feel like you're just wandering around plopping out cities. And again, it's not that I don't like the game. It's just that when you're talking about the catalog of Matt Gertz games, I think it's the second weakest design, which is not necessarily a huge criticism because all those games are great. But yeah, I, I just, I don't, I don't get it. I've, I like, I play Concordia now and then. It's not like I, I gave up on it or anything. I just, I don't, I don't see why this is the Matt Gertz design that everyone's raving about. When you get your cards back. There's that whole mechanism of getting special abilities or whatever that's called. That salsa out. Really? Just, yeah. It's just, that's it's one just, of the things I most like. about. Uh, it's just a yet another mechanism of the game. I just, think okay. It slows it down. Other than that, loving it. Let's talk about Pulsar 2849 next Mark. Cause we both played it. Let's talk about Pulsar 2849. There's a lot going on. I yes. think there's a lot of room for it to break apart. Due to the fact that you only get two actions and you have to draft those actions from dice. And if the dice you need aren't there, then you have to use half of your actions to change the one of those dice to the number that you do need. Right? And and if you hit that a few times in a row while other people are getting the exact dice they do need, I think there's a little bit of breaking down there, in my opinion. So, Pulsar 2849, and parenthetically, I, uh, it's, it, I always find it difficult to remember the precise number, uh, is designed by uh, Vladimir Suki at uh, CGE. Vladimir Suki is, is probably the second most prominent designer in that stable after Vladik Vadl. And it's a dice drafting game, and let's, let's, let's not breeze past the drive da- dice drafting, because the dice drafting itself, honestly, is probably my favorite dice drafting mechanism I've ever seen in any game. Yes. After you roll the dice and you set them out, there's this notion of finding out where the median value is, and any time you draft a die that's greater than that median value, you have to penalize yourself on two extremely important, very competitive, hotly contested tracks. The turn order track, which really matters because you're drafting dice and you're trying to go after very limited resources, and the engineering track, which spews out bonus engineering cubes, which are very, very, very valuable, both for point scoring and for efficiencies. If you draft a die that's lower than the median, you get to go up on, on one of those tracks. That part, I thought, was marvelous. It's very simple, very clean, but it led to very, very tense trade-offs about what I wanted to do with my actions and where I was on the tracks, because everything matters. And it introduces a lot of player interaction where otherwise there might be a little bit less. So that part I thought was absolutely wonderful. Then there's the question of what we do with the dice. After one play, I share some of your concerns. I'm intrigued to try more, because as you say, there's a lot going on. And I don't know whether this is going to be the kind of game where after playing it a couple times, it's going to come into comparative focus, like like the medium-weight Euro games that I really like, like Voyages of Marco Polo, because there's a fair bit going on in Voyages of Marco Polo as well, but it, it kind of boils down into I need to travel and I need to complete contracts. So it doesn't feel like point salad, it doesn't feel scattered, it doesn't feel unfocused, it feels like a tight editorial design. Or, after a little bit more experience, is it instead going to feel like Coimbra, or maybe sometimes how Teotihuacan feels, a little bit less focused than I'd like? Still like Teotihuacan, but it's a little less focused than I'd like. And after one play, it's hard to tell, because the the big sources of points seemed to be the endgame bonuses, 
and the spinning up of gyrodynes. And if that's the big thing, if, if, if you can say to a new player, okay, focus on the big picture here. Here are the toys. Get toys if you can. That's fine. But this is the big picture. Then maybe it'll come into sharper relief. I don't know. Uh, too, too, too soon to tell. I will say, though, this is entirely uh, on me. In hindsight, and as I was watching people make some moves, the rulebook does say, and they, they, I should have stressed in the, in the rules explanation, that some actions, although you can do them with dice, are best left to bonuses. Specifically, the die modifier tiles. You can spend a die, which is half your turn, kind of, sort of, to modify a subsequent die, and buying gyrodynes. The rulebook specifically says... You should probably not use dice to get these unless you can't help it. It's kind of a last resort sort of thing. Because although all these things are powered by dice, sometimes you're expected to get them as a side Benny. So using a die to buy a technology? Absolutely. Using a die to buy a transmitter? Absolutely. Using a die to buy a die modifier? Eh, only if you can't avoid it otherwise. So I liked the the fundamental action selection really, really blowed me away. What they do with that system, I don't know. I have a little bit of concerns about the the data overload, but good teaching might be able to help with that. And I have a little bit of some of your concerns about how you might get yourself built into a corner based on the die results that are available to you. But maybe if you can stay flexible, it'll all work out. So I was intrigued. Suffice to say, I was intrigued and I was pleased by my first experience and I'm eager to see more of Pulsar 2849. Yeah, there's tons of decision, right? You're going on technology tracks or making these cool transmitter, like puzzle things that link together. You're, you're traveling around this galaxy, you know, Visiting planets, visiting pulsars, setting up these gyrodynes on the pulsars. There's tons of things you can do. But like you said, if you don't focus down, then... Yeah. And I think, you know, talking about the transmitters, I think this is really indicative of the overall design philosophy of the game. On the one hand, you need lots of things that your dice can do, so if you're locked out of the thing you want to do, you have other things you can do, so you're not just wasting your turn. But on the other hand... Thinking with an editorial eye, the transmitters may just be one thing too much, right? Because it's another thing you spend dice on, it's another source of income, but then there's this notion of flipping the transmitters and making puzzle pieces and then giving you bonus dice, etc. It's neat on top of a game that already has lots and lots and lots of details. So maybe, just as an example, I'm not saying the transmitters necessarily would be the first thing I'm cut. Uh, I would cut, but just there's a lot of details going on and maybe the game doesn't need all of them. But it was intriguing. And again, the fundamental action selection is so appealing that I'm looking forward to trying it again. Next, let's talk about Lords of Hellas and the five-player expansion. Let's. All right, so the five-player expansion adds a little side map, i.e. it adds Australia to Lords of Hellas. Because it adds like a little island that you can't get to from anywhere else. So it's like sort of cut off. And there's one, for those who haven't heard us talk about Lords of Hellas before or haven't played Lords of Hellas, one of the victory conditions is controlling two lands, which is like two continents, let's say. And if you have one that's completely cut off from the rest and is hard to get to, then, you know, that's 50% of a victory condition that's pretty well locked down by just starting there. So not too sure if I'm keen on that part. So the common complaint that I've heard, and I think this goes to not in any way rebut what you're saying, but give contours to the, to the details, is that when you're playing with five players, number one, it's hard to track what everyone else is going for. Because Lords of Hellas works when you're able to keep an eye on what every, what other victory conditions everyone's going for. One of the things we love about Lords of Hellas is that there's four different victory conditions, and they all work slightly differently. But when there are four other players rather than three other players, and the map is so much bigger... 
it can get a little bit trickier. And so what happened actually in our, our playing was everyone was focusing on one possible game end. And then someone else just announced, oh, by the way, I just won. And everyone's like, oh, I get, oh. Oh, yeah, I guess you do. Uh, congratulations. Which is fine, but, you know, a little bit wonky. The way that you deal with that and the way that they deal with that in terms of game design is the addition of ports. And ports connect a whole bunch of important cities across the board. The problem is, and this is this is one of those areas where components can really drive design problems, the ports are just relatively inconspicuous cardboard discs in a game where pretty much everything else is represented by gorgeous large plastic pieces. All the cities are gorgeous plastic pieces. The temples are lovely plastic pieces. You've got the Oracle of Delphi. You've got the factory in the middle of Atlantis. You've got monsters roaming around. But the ports, which are actually the way to get into Australia, as you put it, which is Atlantis in this case, is the reason why it's not a little cul-de-sac. It is actually easier to get around the board, but when you're playing with ports for the first time, it's not necessarily clear that that's the case. So I really do think that based on on our experience with the five-player expansion, this is only for when there are five players around the table and they all want to play Lords of Hellas. I don't think that five is a particularly good player count. I don't even want to try the sixth-player expansion. There's a sixth-player expansion for Lords of Hellas that adds another map board, and because the downtime was okay. Honestly, with five players, we weren't all masters at Lords of Hellas, but we'd all played at least once before. The downtime was 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 pretty good, all yep. told. But there are better five-player games to be had. Honestly, if if we desperately want to play something within the striking distance of dudes on a map, I'd rather play Quartermaster General 1914 or Senji or Komet, something that works better at five and where it's a little less distracting. So I think it's a good fix, but necess- but probably a good fix to a problem that didn't need to be solved. Overall, I agree. Also got to play just one. We just demoed up. It's easy. We just grabbed code names and we used our phones and you just, you know, flip up a code names card. Everyone typed on their phone. You know, we compared them. Just a great way to proxy just one. We hear it's so very wrong about games. Do not endorse not buying board games. Buy all the board games. Buy them several times. Buy five copies for everyone you know. And that's how we played just one. Everyone loved it, and it was a great way. And then we played, I already talked about Heads Up before. It's a great app on your phone. It's a great multiplayer sort of fun word game. Final game I got to play last week. I was in the presence of a refined world traveler, a man of education and sophistication. And so naturally, in the presence of such an individual, we busted out a GMT game because I know that none of the uh, the locals Riff-raff. mentioning no one in particular, such as the people or person sitting across from me at this particular table. We played Sekigahara, The Unification of Japan, which is a lovely little two-hour war game. This is I've only played it a couple times. It's been out for almost ten years now, but I've only had a couple of opportunities to play it. It's a game of bluff, of risk, of genuine gut-wrenching moments. Every choice is agonizing because you have a very, very limited ability to get anything done. You've got this hand of cards and a limited number of troops, and the only way you can successfully marshal an attack is when both of those coincide. So you really have to be very careful about when to apply pressure points. And you have to be careful about where you're weak, but you can't let your opponent know you're weak there because otherwise they'll, they'll go attack you. That part is great. The fundamental mechanisms, the fundamental systems is absolutely wonderful. I really like it. I have concerns about the specific setup. And like many historical war games, 
and this is especially true of the first edition, which is the edition that I have, the historical victor is heavily favored. This is a frequent, frequent instance uh, in both the historical concepts and even the later historical war games like Sekigahara. Even Memoir 44 has this problem. You know, whoever won the historical engagement, probably going to win the scenario unless it's been very, very carefully designed. As I understand it, in the second edition, they added minor, minor, minor balance tweaks. But even with that, my understanding is that at the very high level, typically you want to bid for victory points to determine which side gets what. I only found that frustrating and limiting because it's already an agonizing game. Some games, even when you're losing, you know, they're very pleasant, smooth experiences. But Sekigahara is tense because everything you spend is desperately valuable. And I enjoy that. But in combination with an unbalanced scenario, sometimes that gets me a little uh, a little more frustrated that the experience isn't as balanced as, as, as it wants to be. Furthermore, uh, I have some concerns about, you know, the fact that the map layout is always the same. And it's a relatively sparse map, which is good because it keeps things focused. But I, I, I sometimes question how much replayability there is. That's why there's always, I always leave a, a couple of years in between playings. But it's a marvelous design. Anyone even remotely uh, curious about modeling historical warfare in very, very thematic, very historically evocative, but very clean ways needs to take a look at Sekigahara. It has a number of very interesting uh, ways to deal with historical problems. And the designer's notes and the historical notes are wonderful reads as well. So it's a marvelous, marvelous game. I'm very, very glad to have it around, even if it's not something that I want to play all the time. And that was Sekigahara, The Unification of Japan. So on the same topic as historical games and historic, massively accurate historical games, I got to play Tonghauser. And it depicts you know, <laughs> exactly how World War II played, played out in a skirmish level rather than, you know, globally. Anyway, uh, Tonghauser is an older game that back in the fantastic pre-painted miniature phase of our hobby where, you know, we got incredible miniatures pre-painted right in the box. And I miss those days so it, much. I miss them so much. And when it first came out, the, the, the rule book was borderline unplayable. And even if you did understand how to play it, it was terrible. Apparently there was this whole how they changed it. I, I'm not going to get into that. You know, your one whole side went and then the other whole side went and it was like, massive death and destruction anyway there was there was an updated rule book and we decided to bust it out again so we got a nice printed copy of the updated rule book and it's it is a fantastic little game even even though i you know bashed it when you know i had just two seconds ago bashed it when it first came out just the way you know uh you you got your item loadout and the and the painted figures and the line of sight system that is yet to be replicated. That, Fantastic. That's not true. Rob Davio has a game that uses the same line of sight system that oh. that premiered at Gen Con. Oh well, there you go. Yeah, just this past Gen Con. Yes. Well, there you go. Finally, someone has you know copied this cool little line of sight rules. It was it was just it all it was was because you there was no measurement. You just moved around the board. There was all these circles, but they're all colored. So in a in a certain room there'd be blue circles and then the other room would be orange, but at the doorway it would be half blue and half orange. So like if you were in the same color you had line of sight. And there's all sorts of different circumstances. But other than that, it was it's one of these cool occult type World War Two things where, you know, the the Nazis, you know, you know, had some crazy mind powers and all sorts of cool stuff happened. But overall, it was a it was a very interesting game, and we had a lot of fun playing it. I actually translated the Tannhauser rulebook into English back when it was first released because it was originally a French game, and I was at the time very keen on anything with pre painted miniatures. 
And the line of sight system was, you know, immediately appealing and immediately clever. Parenthetically, the 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 new game is called Unmatched Battle of Legends. The reason, one of the reasons why I haven't talked about it or haven't really sought out a copy is I'm not really particularly keen on having, you know, Genghis Khan fight Robin Hood. It just doesn't really do much for me, except in the context of Duel of Ages, which is a wonderful game, but you know, on a, on a micro level, not necessarily. Anyway, it it, it uses some of the same line of sight systems. It, it would appear. But I am, I, I'd be curious to try the, the revised rulebook because I will give Fantasy Flight credit where credit is due. Sometimes after messing up a game two, three times in succession, they eventually stumble on something that's workable. So occasionally. Yeah. All right. Thinking about talking about games that are amazing and overlooked. Core Worlds. I really think this is the best straight. There are lots of games that use deck building, like Mage Knight uses as a mechanism, other games, but as a, just a game that uses like a core deck building game, core worlds. You can never go wrong. What a fantastic game! Yes, you. Can, I, I sorry, I hate to interrupt you. You can go wrong if you're playing five players. You shouldn't play core worlds. Well, who plays five player core worlds? Like, you just you can never go wrong. It's just it's an important caveat. I love core worlds too, but for me, it's primarily a two and three player two, game. Yeah, I was about to say with two and three players, yeah. <laughs> you play core worlds. Any more than that, you do not play core worlds. <laughs> anyway. It has two expansions, both second one better than the first. Disagree. Oh, sorry. Is the other way around? Sorry. The other way well, around. I, I, I don't know. I, the, I'm talking about the ones where you put out all the tokens. Yes, the tokens one. The first is the, one? Yes. First one better than the second then? Yes, sir. I have yet to have a bad experience playing Core Worlds. Like you said, though, because I haven't played it more than three players. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a couple of bad four-player experiences where people were taking too long. But yeah, Core Worlds is great. Are that Those were the games that we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. First of all, we have a Patreon. We do. Oh, yes. It's, what's this, 80? This is 80. Goodness this is episode number eight. Gracious. We mention it every five episodes, and we've mentioned it, and we're yeah, moving on. Yeah, Patreon. Puerto Rico. For some reason, people think it's a good game. <laughs> I, you know, I just want to, I want to create conflict, Mark. No, sure, sure. That being said, I have played Puerto Rico once, and it was like almost... In my, you know, early days of, of, of first, you know, getting into this hobby. But even back then, I think even if I played it again now, I'd still think the same thing. I really think it just plays itself. There's the obvious choice. People will tell me I'm wrong. Eh. I, that's what I thought, you know, while they're playing it, you look down the board. It's like, well, that's obviously the best choice now. That's obviously the best for me now. It's just a game of, you know, now I need to make the best choice and therefore I'm going to do it. I think Puerto Rico is a very, very illustrative example of why the people you play with really matter, because everyone who was involved in the hobby at the time of its release probably has a story about playing with those insufferable Puerto Rico players who, quote unquote, solved it and will love to tell you how you're playing it wrong. That being said, it's getting a new edition, has some uh, expansions already included, so... If you don't have a copy of Puerto Rico and you've always wanted to pick one up, now is the time. There have been some development in the reprint to Successors. Successors is my favorite historical war game, co-designed by Richard Berg, rest in peace. And Phalanx is the company putting it out. And I have to say uh, two things about the ongoing slow dribble of news. Number one, the graphic design is very impressive in a lot of ways. It really looks like it's going to be a polished product. But number two, uh, I can't really endorse the way that Phalanx has been dealing with its consumers because, yes, war games are a vocal bunch, and I'm sure it can be very, very tiresome dealing with people telling you how to do your job. But in response to very reasonable questions like, you posted prototype images of the game board. Why isn't North up? 
Why have you decided to rotate things? This is confusing and strange. And the overall response on the part of the publishers to all feedback on BoardGameGeek, whether it was aggressive, whether it was overly critical, even sometimes it was just, why have you made this design choice? Especially since some of the design choices in terms of the graphic presentation are A, radically ahistorical, and B, easily substitutable by more historical examples. Their responses have been uh, dismissive, flatly dismissive and condescending and glib. And honestly, at that point, guys, don't communicate at all on BoardGameGeek. You don't have to respond. If you're as a publisher and you're releasing prototype images, you don't have to say anything when people criticize you. And when wargamers who've been playing successors for for decades, literally, say, why have you made this particular decision? Why have you put a Corinthian helmet on the cover of your game when you could have easily put a helmet more representative of the actual Diodokai? And sometimes, you know, a publisher will show up and say, oh, well, you know, everyone telling me how to do my job and everything. It's like, eh, guys, maybe you should either shut up or be a little bit more polite. Anyway, so I have some misgivings about the, the upcoming reprint for successors. There's a lot of information about it uh, uh, on BoardGameGeek. And uh, that's just my unsolicited advice for all board game publishers. Be nice to each other. Yes. All right. So I've been playing a lot of games online. Like I said before, I got the Scythe video game. <laughs> video game. I also got the, you know, uh, Terraforming Mars. All fantastic. I'm only bringing this up because Gloomhaven now is in early access. Looks fantastic. I haven't had a chance to try it, but I've only heard good things. And what I'm thinking it's best going to be used for is like if you can't get together with some certain people they live far away or whatever this is going to be a fantastic way to get these gloomhaven campaigns in when and if they have all the classes maybe i'll give it a look but until then well in about three years yeah i give it about three years we already mentioned the only game that matters seal team flicks i just wanted to uh give a, another quick mention there was an announcement today on board game geek from zev slashinger that there was that there's an expansion ready to go but there it is not in the queue because they haven't sold enough copies of the base game, which means that we, as a hobby, have failed. I blame our, our listeners. Like, personally, every one of you. This I, is your no, fault. No, I blame my parents. Oh, your parents. I was raised wrong. Oh, probably. Everyone else was raised. Maybe it's the Violent Vigi games. Maybe that's the problem. I don't know. But something went wrong yeah, somewhere, some, something, Walker. Exactly. Someone it's, it's is to blame, fault. and I know in my heart that I am blameless in all things, so it can't be me. Exactly. Must be somebody. Buy copies of Seal Team Flicks. It is the only game that matters, and we want the expansion. That is my news item. I have abandoned all editorial objectivity. That is what I have to say about this matter. (laughs) All right, on to things that don't really matter, and who asked for this? Guess what? Tiny Ultra. Ultra. Ultra Tiny Epic Galaxies. No, I think it's actually in that context. It's Ultra. Ultra Tiny Epic Galaxies. Who cares? (laughs) Um. Yeah, <laughs> on on the topic of uh, who asked for this. So, yeah, they're going to do now Ultra. It's 20% smaller, Mark. Again, I, I hate to contradict you, Walker, but there are lots of people who care desperately about everything Scott Alms does. I am not one of them. You are not one of them. But a lot of people are huge fans. More power to them. We need 20% less of them. 20% off the top? Yes. Finally, on the topic of actions that are closely scrutinized by members in the hobby, Jamie Stigmeyer is going to have a new game. It's going to be called Tapestry. And what I find particularly interesting, 
is how he's trying to be, to his credit, as transparently obvious as possible about how many copies he's printing and about how many are entering the supply chain because there's still the massive furor over wingspan has yet to fully die down. And so normally you only number boxes in the case of limited editions. You know, there's only a thousand copies of this. You have copy 561 of a thousand. He is going to be numbering every single copy of Tapestry. By hand. (laughs) Maybe, maybe not. Now, I'm not even remotely excited about the game because I think that probably if I had to pick the most overrated game designer uh, currently working, it would probably he'd probably be in the top five. I don't know. He probably would be in the top. But, you know, we both like Scythe, and that's about it. I think, you know, he's had one good idea. We hated Charterstone. I hated Euphoria with a passion. I think most... Anyway, Tapestry's coming out. It looks gorgeous. It's going to be very expensive and very, very swank. I am just eager to see what happens now that he's blacklisted a couple of developers for talking smack about him and he's blacklisted a couple of retailers. Maybe the uh, distribution errors of the past will will be overcome. Maybe they won't. So I'm curious to see that, if nothing else, about Tapestry from Stonemaier Games. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the feature game of the week, which is War Cry by Games Workshop. So this is Warhammer Age of Sigmar Warcry. War, war, war. So Games Workshop, of course, is well known for its core products, namely Warhammer Fantasy and Warhammer 40k. A few years ago, they basically discontinued Warhammer Fantasy and replaced it with Warhammer Age of Sigmar, to much consternation amongst many people. That's generally been Games Workshop's MO. They have planned obsolescence for lots of things. You have to buy new armies and new units and new books and such. But we have always been very interested in their standalone products. Walker is is kind of a a recovering 40k addict. I never really inhaled or I never really uh, genuflected at that particular church. But I've always been interested in Necromunda and Mordheim back in the day. That was their fantasy and uh, science fiction in reverse order campaign style skirmish games i much prefer skirmish games anyway and more recently they've kind of started doing that again they had shadow war uh, which they supported for i think five seconds by accident they've resurrected necromunda which is still being supported they have the 40k skirmish game called kill team which we did not enjoy roll to confirm your not enjoyment Roll to confirm that you confirmed your non-enjoyment. Oh, I saved my armor check. Start again. And now we have this, which is the Age of Sigmar Warcry, which again is a skirmish-level campaign-style game with a small number of models where you're expected to track some elements of of campaign progression and things can basically level up and so forth. More detail on all that later. So that's the overall situating it in the timeline. I will, however, before I ask Walker for an unhelpful summary about what one does in Warcry, I will say this. Games Workshop, you need to start crediting your designers. Because some games, we know who designed them, like Space Hulk, even Warhammer Underworlds. We know who designed them in the database. But Games Workshop is very tight-lipped about lots of other products. I don't care if it's a list a mile long. I would like to know at least some of the people involved. Let me know about the editorial direction. Designers and developers both need to be credited publicly, and it is obnoxious when you don't. I would say this to Games Workshop. I would say this to The Economist magazine. I would say this to any number of people. Credit your work. Anyway, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Warcry? What you do in Warcry is hope that you get at least 30 games played or play really slow because that's how long it took you to put together all the figures and the miniatures and the terrain. So you want to make sure you get all that time in because you want it to equal out what you're actually doing in... Games Workshop Warcry is you're 
playing a skirmish miniature game that you have objectives and you definitely have to focus on the objective or else you're going to lose you're you're moving around a a a heavily trained tabletop you're engaging figures you're rolling dice to kill those figures it's an all-round straight-up miniature skirmish game so let's start off giving credit where credit is due, and this is one thing I want to acknowledge right off the top. One thing that we didn't mention in our discussion about tabletop miniatures games is we talked about how expensive it is and how time-consuming it is to get into the hobby, but an additional real kick to the teeth is good starter sets in miniatures games are vanishingly rare. Usually what you get is a third of the terrain you might need, or sometimes even just a single piece, and you get a force that is maybe half as many points as you need to actually field a good force, and they call that a starter set. And it's often insulting. Whatever else you want to say about Warcry, this is a starter set of Warcry. You have two full armies that are at the point cap of what an actual army is. In the starter box, well, this is all the starter box, of course, you get enough terrain to cover a board very densely uh, by many standards, although more on this later, and you get all the supplying cards and stuff, and even the included range ruler is of pretty good quality for uh, a range ruler. You're probably probably best off using measuring tape anyway. But as far as starter sets go, it is very, very competitive, and they thought carefully about making sure that everything you needed was inside the box. So credit to, credit where credit is due. They did a great job on that. True. While you're talking about it, I remembered some of the old Warhammer Fantasy starter sets that had, like, the cardboard trees that, you know, sort of just, like, slotted together, or the hills that were just, like, cardboard that you put out. And even they even made some of the miniatures cardboard cutouts <laughs> they gave you the starter armies and they would be like the catapult for one side was a cardboard cutout and like the griffin rider of the elves was just a cardboard standee that you you'd put up wow yep so here's what you do in a game of Warcry. at the very start of the game what you do is you pull out four decks of cards and you pull out a random instance of each from each deck and that is going to tell you how the scenario is going to work you have a random terrain setup which will use the terrain in the box You get a random set of deployment zones. You have to divide your army into three different squads, and they're going to show up not all necessarily at the same time and in different places. You're going to get a random set of victory conditions. You're going to get a random twist. And that part, at least, shows promise. I was intrigued by that that prospect because, one of the again, one of the the difficult things to do when you're starting miniatures gaming is you're told, well, set set up a table. And you often don't know what a good table looks like, or two players might disagree about what a good table looks like. And it's not something very well represented inside games. Here, at least, it's all set up for you. And that part, I thought, was kind of cool. Again, the notion of an auto-scenario generator, if done well, can be very compelling. Yeah. that If done well. If done well. This is going to be one of the points that I talk about, is the fact that you can teach this game in mere minutes. Because the cards come out, you set it up, the system is so easy. You, it, anyone who, even if you're not familiar with Games Workshop, it's easy. It's if if you you have a you have a, an attack stat, a strength stat, and a toughness stat. There are other things, but those three things are all you need to know. And attack is going to tell you how many dice you're going to roll. Strength, you just compare the two. If it's if your strength is less, then you need fives and sixes. If it's equals, you need fours, and if it's more, you need three or higher. There's the game done right you're moving around the thing you say is it higher or lower you roll your dice you apply your hits and and you're ready to go that part of the game i really loved 
Attack resolution is great. It's quick and bloody. It is a complete rebuttal of all the kill team nonsense. It's a complete rebuttal even of most Games Workshop core attack resolution mechanisms. It feels... The, the only other time I've had uh, a Games Workshop attack resolution this clean is Space Hulk, for crying out loud. Because the moment I saw that there was a strength versus toughness chart, I immediately got nervous. But no, it's fine. And models... There's a great differentiation between models. Some feel really, really tough, but they're not invincible. Some feel really, really disposable, but they're not lightweights. And that element is great. So it's quick and bloody. Things happen. You get to chuck dice and you get to, you get to take down titans and have your titans deal out massive quantities of damage. That part is great. Yeah, and you have this chance of getting a crit. So, and it's not another roll, right? It's not a roll and you roll. It's when you roll your one roll in combat, you, if you roll, Sixes, you do a crit and it has a one damage stat, and any other hit does it normal damage, and fantastic mechanism. The other thing that's great, I will I will accede Walker to your normal uh, strategy of talking about good things and then then bad points. Gotcha, gotcha. Another thing that I found really appealing and actually paid off is the initiative system, which I think is fabulous. It's one of the best I've ever seen, honestly, in miniatures games. Most of the time, even in very, very good miniatures games, the initiative roll is just a flat roll and nothing happens. Here what you do is you roll six dice, you divvy up the dice into sets. So, okay, I've rolled three twos, a couple fives, and the rest are just singletons. And your singletons determine who has the initiative. Whoever rolled more singles gets the initiative. But it's the sets that power your abilities. So if you won initiative, you're not going to have as many powerful abilities to trigger later on, whereas if you lose initiative, it's probably because you have more uh, more special abilities. It reminds me a little bit also of the uh, the way the ability activation system works of Akko. One of the reasons why I like Akko, the uh, out-of-print cardboard sandy miniatures game, is at the start of every round, you roll custom dice, and those dice are the ones that are going to be used to power various abilities. So you have a menu of options to use. And the abilities in Warcry, although they're probably more than you need, there's there's some glut there. Some abilities aren't as useful as others. But you still have to look at your pool of dice at the start of the game. It's like, okay, well, I lost initiative, but I can trigger this ability, or maybe if I need to, I can trigger this other one. And that part is great. And the fact that these systems, I love it when simple systems interact and have consequences later on in the phase. It's one of the things I love most about Senji, for example, the way the battle dice implicate diplomacy, etc., etc., etc. And it's really clean, really cool, and finally, initiative rolls are interesting, which they almost never are. And there's nothing hidden. That's the best part. Like with other special abilities, is that they're gonna someone's gonna flip up a card and say, "Oh, guess what I get to do now?" There's none of that. You look over, you can see he's got triples. That means that particular guy can do this crazy berserk attack in this middle of this group of guys they have. So I've won initiative. So I'm gonna run my little peon guy over there and tie him up so he can't run into the middle of my guy. So that's it's i love this initiative system it, it it powers these abilities which aren't overpowered you can see everything that's happening you can sort of plan your whole turnout i need these dice for this i want this to happen and you plan the whole thing out love it do you have other good things to say about work walker you already covered them. the train is fantastic uh, the rule book is one single book. You don't have to go digging through, you know, army books and train books and mission books. It's all in one book. That part is good. The figures are great, even though, you know, you have to put everything together. And we covered everything else already. Except, let's just, since we talked about the train stuff, the number of ejection points <laughs> on this train was yeah. ridiculous. And I thought, you know, maybe... Uh, it's been a while since I've I've put together figures or or played these miniature systems. And I thought, you know... 
with the advancement of technology, it'd be a lot easier, but it was borderline ridiculous. Just a minor gripe. Well, yeah, and, and having uh, most recently, the things that I've been assembling mostly from Games Workshop have been Warhammer Underworlds models, which are push fit. And they have fewer fewer injection lines, and they fit together better. Now, granted, it's a different product marketed in different ways, and there are different economies of scale. And all told, the con- the amount of content you get in the base game box is an expensive base game box, make no mistake. But it's a full starter and has everything you need. Uh, yeah, some of the assembly was a little bit wonky. I agree with you there. All right. Let's turn the page. Bad things. We just talked about the train and the injection points and that stuff. Let's talk about the fact that you never even use the train anyway. So what's the point of putting it together? Yeah, there's this great system, right? Where you set out four cards at the top of the, and that sets out the scenario. But it doesn't matter because you end up with a scrum and you just chuck a whole bunch of dice. Now, we like the dice chucking. The dice chucking is good. But very rarely do you feel like you're doing any tactical maneuvering. You're not using the train in an interesting way. There are rules for like pushing people into spikes and jumping off of platforms and stuff like that. Uh, it, but it doesn't matter. Nothing really matters. And so it all ends up feeling very samey and very much like a lot of other lazy, sloppy tabletop miniatures games where everybody ends up in a scrum in the middle or around some other victory condition. And you're just chucking dice until people die. It's such a wasted opportunity, and it frustrates me. Like we were talking, the, the movement rules are, are overall pretty good, and they're talking about jumping and climbing and all these other things, but it, there's no reason to take higher ground. If the game had built in reasons to take higher ground, I think that would have added a tremendous degree of dynamism and tremendous value to the plastic that they included in the box. But as it is, you're just going to be moving around the large building rather than climbing up the ladder to jump down and stab somebody in the back. That just leads to another weird point. The fact that they did such a great job with the fluid movement. All you do is measure up. There's none of these like silly half your movement when you're climbing or you don't have to stop or anything. But then they didn't let you move through your own guys. Like you can easily move up this train and over spiky bits and all this, but you can't push by your friend. And it's just such a weird, like why did they make, why did they block you there and but make this other thing so easy? It's just such a such an odd choice. Yeah, some of the choke points are good. Some of the choke points are because you moved your figure to base people so that they couldn't go after their actual target. That part's fine. But at the part where the ter- the only salient impact of the terrain is just there's not enough width for your guys to move past the 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 over over wide base of their buddy. That part is less satisfying. And then that just leads into, like I said, you have all these setup decks that tell you about all this terrain and where you're going to set up. And it, and like you said, it in the end, it just doesn't matter because doesn't it matter. boils down to this, you know, everyone runs to the middle because the objective told you to do so. Or, you know, you have to kill everybody anyway. And climbing up the train is just wasting your time anyway. So that whole very interesting, cool system with the cards in the end does, is a wash, in yep. our opinion. And so, therefore painfully disappointing and the victory conditions are generally uninspired you know there's nothing the scenarios that you generate from the system are are pretty dull and feel like all the rest of them there's no notion of support you know there's no notion of ganging up on somebody and getting any any support abilities from that support abilities are a great way to add some tactical maneuvering and positioning to miniatures games that's one of the things i like about Akko, for example support really matters and there's no reason to use the train. It's just, and all the victory conditions are just a headhunt for selected targets. It's like go murder somebody. That's even on top of the fact that, insofar as the, the the contours of the scenario have any impact, mostly it just serves to throw the balance out of whack. Because to their credit, and this is one of the, I, I guess, a good feature. There are lots of different armies that you can field in Warcry. 
Now, the core groups are basically just eight variations on chaos gangs. And quite frankly, this is this is a thematic preference, but I don't really care about the fact that these barbarians look slightly different from these other barbarian guys. And this guy worships corn instead of Nurgle or whatever. Honestly, they all look and sound the same to me. Like, it's not as bad as hate, but it is exactly it is rough. Exactly. But... If you want to, you can field other factions. You can field the Orcs, you can field the uh, Stormcast Eternals, you can field other other groups, the Undead, things like that. Uh, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really feel like the scenarios are going to lead to anything remotely resembling a balanced experience. Because maybe your scenario says that you have to be dynamic and you have to go and grab things. Okay, fine, that still is going to result in a murder fest, but suddenly the guys with range don't really like that very much. Or maybe the scenario is just going to be a murder fest centered around a siege, in which case the ranged guys are going to mop the floor with everybody else. Things like that. So the these random objectives simultaneously, and this is a mean feat, all feel very samey at the same time while throwing the balance out of whack if you care about such things. So that was disappointing as well. That's another point. I think the the what we in the games that we played, range seemed very uh, overpowered. We talked about other games where they make the ranged attacks less powerful, or or you know to to tone them down. In this game, it doesn't seem they they did that at all. It just seems that sometimes that they can rule the battlefield, you know, in certain circumstances. A positive for me, which may be a negative for other things, is that they have really scaled down the campaign elements. I talked about this last week in the context of Mech Command RTS. I really appreciate it when the campaign elements are very, very simple, low overhead, uh, just a little bit of flavor, a little bit of, of detail. It's also very flexible. You don't have to play amongst the same league. There's a very built-in notion of, you've got your warband, you can play against anybody at any stage of warband development. And I kind of like that. It's, again, it's not necessarily going to be balanced because I might have an extra 10% of my army that I can field as opposed to you. So that that's a little bit wonky. But, you know, it's it's not quite as bad as it could have been. And it doesn't and it means that you the, the possibilities have been opened up a little bit. So overall, I think the campaign elements are well calibrated to what I'm interested in managing at this particular point in my gaming career. I think the the biggest point I want to make is the fact that You've taken time to put all this train together. You've taken all this time to put all these figures together. You're actually building... One of, one of the things we like about these games is that you actually get to build your warband. All these guys have a certain point value. You build up to a point value so you can... So you're building a band that you enjoy, your personal thing. We've talked about this when we talk about miniature games. This is a, a group of guys that you've brought together. You have invested interest on in these guys. And the game lasts... It's a very short game. And usually is a short game. And now you've done all this preparation and all this stuff. And I, the, I don't think the payoff even comes close to, to meeting expectations. I think the short playtime is an asset. It's 45 to 60 minutes. And again, this is because the attacks are so quick and satisfying and bloody. I think more or less perfectly calibrated. You know, not not every, people are almost never going to go down in a single hit, but at the same time, you can you can bring powerful units to their knees. That part I think is an asset. To me, the lack of payoff is less the duration that you're going to be spending on a given match, and more how inconsequential all this other stuff is, and everything ends up degenerating into a scrum. The terrain doesn't matter. The victory conditions don't matter. At the end of the day, it's all going to be about the same. You know, like. It, all that it has going for it is these is these bloody and satisfying attacks. So it's just it's a glorified dice chucker, which mediocre miniatures games have been degenerating into for decades. And the really frustrating thing for me is, and this is actually where I'm going to kind of end up, is Games Workshop knows better. 
they've been doing better in various ways for a long time. Warhammer Underworlds does all of these things better. You get different victory conditions by virtue of the decks that people have built. Warhammer Underworlds is not just a kill fest. It can be a kill fest if you want it to be. You want to build a, a warband that, that focuses on murdering everybody? Fine. Go fill your boots. You want to play a sneaky, tricky warband? Fine. And watching those two warbands fight each other is fascinating as they try to shape the battlefield to control it. Terrain matters in Warhammer Underworlds. Positioning matters in Warhammer Underworlds. Support matters in Warhammer Underworlds. The activation system in Warhammer Underworlds is more satisfying. The only thing that Warcry has got going for it over Warhammer Underworlds is in uh, you get to build your own warband. Fine, that's not a trivial thing. Building your own world warband is very, very fun, and I'll give it that. Of course, in Warhammer Underworlds, you get to build your deck, which is kind of comparable, but whatever. And the initiative system and the way that abilities are powered is beautiful. It's a shame, and it's so frustrating, and one of the reasons why I found Warcry such a glaring disappointment is it just doesn't build on the promise of some of its core elements, namely the initiative system and the build-your-own-scenario system. There could be so much good stuff there, especially given how much care and thought they've put into the components that go into the core box, but nothing pays off, and it all ends up feeling irrelevant. Yeah, especially when it's in such a field of so many different systems they they really needed to lock that down better, and I don't think they did it. Even other systems by Games Workshop. <laughs> even other systems by Games Workshop. How many can they support? The fact that they're still supporting Necromunda, that's fantastic. You talked about, what was it, Shadow War. They brought out Shadow War and said, you know, this is going to be the Necromunda. We're not putting out Necromunda. This <laughs> is going to be our Necromunda. And then, you know, months later, here comes Necromunda. And, and Shadespire and uh, Warhammer and 40K... Even just this one company has several different miniature systems, and they bring out yet another one. They really need to tighten it up. To give credit where credit is due, in some of these instances, they're at least trying new things. And there are elements of Warcry that we like, so I will give them credit for that much. But I agree with you, if they're going to keep churning out... Well, this is why they stopped putting out so-called specialist games for over 10 years. They just stopped for a long time. And they, can't, they did nothing that was not one of their core products. At least they're trying new stuff. And they're still supporting Warhammer Underworlds. The local community here has dried up, so we don't get to play it anymore. But they're still putting out new warbands, and that's great. Because all those mechanical innovations, and all that, and it's a very different kind of game for, for Games Workshop. So I give them credit for all that and their willingness to try new things. I'm mostly just frustrated that all the cool bits of Warcry didn't manifest into an engaging experience. Agreed. That's going to close it out for this week at So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoeseiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, 
you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.